Namaskar, everyone, and thank you for the very kind introduction. And also, thanks for also saying about um, the goal of Renaissance Universal. What he said is that we want a healthy human society. And this is, <clears throat> this is the crisis that we have today, is that we don't have the healthy human society. Although crisis is a question of, um, of your position in the society, Many people don't know. They say, what crisis? For some people, there's no crisis. Everything is good. One time, in, um, some many years back, one of our colleagues wrote um, a book, and he predicted that there would be a great economic depression. So I asked another of my colleagues, who hails from South America, Brazil, I said, when do you think this great depression is coming? He said, we've been in a great depression for the last 30 years, you know in those countries where um, developing countries, they've been suffering for many years, so it's, they know there's a, a crisis, but there are many people who don't realize there's a crisis. Everything is fine for them. But if we take a, a global look at the world, we see that everything is not fine, because despite our advanced civilization and our incredible um, new inventions and technology and, and so many great things that we have, there are many people on this planet who, who live on $2 a day or less. And they're right here, some of them are right here in this country. You know, people who, who um, die because of malnutrition, malnutrition caused not only by poverty, but even by ignorance. People don't even know. There are vegetables right in front of them. They could eat. They don't even know that. So we shouldn't be even if we're here comfortable, we're the fortunate people, right? We're the very fortunate people. But there are many people who are so unfortunate that they don't even have the strength to, um, to tell us what they're suffering. Uh, like for all the people here, I imagine that if anyone does anything to you, you'll take out a procession, you'll, you'll start a movement, you'll do something. But there are many people who don't have even that scope to, to, to say anything. These people are the ones who are really in the crisis. And it's our duty as people who, who are a little bit above that level of, of um, discomfort and, and uh, poverty that we should do something um, for this whole world. So, so this is really um, what has to be done. So there really is a crisis at, on the economic level. And I'm going to speak on three um, aspects of the crisis. One, economic, and then government, and also environment. Uh, I'll try to um, address some of those things. So let's take a look at the economy. In fact, that's the, um, the, the genesis of my song, because if you follow American politics, I, I guess every four years you, you're forced to follow it because there's an election and it's in your news. But if some of you can remember back to 1992, um, Bill Clinton was running for office. And um, you know, actually, most of the politicians in America are very close. They're not, there's not really a gap so much, although it looks like it. There's not that big of a gap. So that's why they have to strive very hard to um, differentiate themselves, to to show what, what they are, it's different. Because there really isn't that much difference, but they have to do their best. So Bill Clinton 
came up with a very um, good slogan, you know, which would set his campaign off. He said, it's the economy, stupid. It's an American expression, anyway. You know, he's not trying to insult the audience, but it's like, he said, wake up. The, the main thing here is the economic issue. So, so that's what he said. So he said, it's the economy, stupid. I say he didn't go far enough because it's not a question of just um, if we have um, high production this year or lower production next year. It's a question of, it's the system. The fundamental question is the kind of system that we have which creates the economic problems. It's a systemic problem. It's not a, just a problem of the business cycle. This year the business cycle is up and next year it's down. It's not a question of the business cycle. It's a question of, of a system which, um, which, which uh, spreads or the wealth in a, in a very lopsided way. So before it was mentioned that you know, I have some association with the, uh, the Wall Street movement in America. So they, they accomplished one thing in the last year. In one year they accomplished one thing. They were able to impress on people that even in the United States, which is a developed country, that there's 1% of the people who have in inordinate amount of wealth, and not only 1%, there's one-tenth of 1% that has tremendous wealth, and, and the rest, the 99%, they have very, you know, it's, it doesn't compare to what the 1% have. So can we say that that's a proper um, way of, 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 of allocating resources? That's what e economics is about, how to allocate scarce resources. So we have a system today that, that just um, it, it gives the wealth, it brings the wealth in the hands of very few people. And this causes many, many problems, not just economic problems. So this is, um, this is the root of, of, of the problem. And um, you know, this question of how to allocate wealth, of course, people have been, been debating it for, um, you know, for many years. And, and even um, 50 years ago, the whole world was almost, well, at least Europe and North America was almost incinerated over this issue because the Cold War and the Cuban Missile Crisis happened. And, but it was basically a, de uh, a debate about how are we going to allocate the resources. So in that time period, um, there, were, there were two fundamental theories how to do it. So you know that in the, in the West, the basic system is capitalism. And capitalism is based on, on one important principle which Adam Smith enunciated you know, around 1776. Basically, what he said was that if individuals are allowed freely to pursue their own self-interest, the society will be benefited. That the, he said there's an invisible hand which is guiding things and then even though individuals are pursuing their greed, then the whole society will get the benefit of still the increased wealth. So this is the, um, his concept. And so that's what um, capitalism is based on that. So in America, it's taken to its extreme because we have an expression called rugged individualism. So you know, the individual is everything. The society is not so much. 
So based on, um, on that, you know, capitalism developed, and it brought some benefits, no doubt. But opposing that theory were others who, who looked at it and they saw the, the problems. Karl Marx, you know, was in England in the 1800s, and he saw that many women were forced to work in the factories, and even they had, there was no childcare, no anything. They could leave their baby outside, and when they come, finish the factory shift, the baby is dead. Because of that kind of um, situation, he was moved to, um, to propose another way of allocating the scarce resources of the planet. And of course he came up with, um, with his system of with Marxism, although I think he said, I'm, thank God I'm not a Marxist, you know, at the end. In any case, it's called Marxism after him. But the basic idea there is that, um, that there should be some, you know, individuals shouldn't be allowed to accumulate wealth and the, and the society has to, um, to, to deal with that problem at, Problem to you know to make um, communes and other systems uh, so that wealth would be spread. So he had an egalitarian notion, but just as capitalism has given us a lopsided system which um, has deprived many people, the the Marxist experiment, especially in Europe, was a, was a failure. I've been in oh, I've been in all of the the Marx, former Marxist countries of Eastern Europe. And I've talked to the people and I saw what happened. So they were suppressed in their mind and, and their, their environment was ruined. Aesthetics was crushed. Spirituality was stamped out. So it wasn't a very happy experiment. And that's why it ended very quickly in just a few weeks, in 1989, 1990, just a few weeks, because it was imposed on them and, and it didn't work and they left it. So this is, um, but this, these are the battles. So in the last century, this was the battle. What, which system are we going to have? Are we going to have capitalism with its rugged individualism and um, let the individual do what he wants? Or are we going to have a, a system where the state controls everything and the individual is nothing? So you know that if you study the history of this period, a very interesting thing is there, that during the 1950s, there were some countries, and India was a leader, they said, we don't want either. We, they formed a non-aligned movement. They said that we don't want either of these things. There was, so so uh, Nehru and um, Nkrumah of, of Ghana and Tito and, and Nasser of Egypt, these people said, we want to be non-aligned. We want to do something different. But the, sad, the thing is that they, they really couldn't... Um, find anything in between. They had mixed systems and, and you know what, when you have a mixed system it doesn't work. Usually the strongest part of that system controls it. So like a, a mixed system where there's some capitalism, some socialism, usually the capitalists end up um, controlling it. In any case, but the interesting thing about that is that in this same period, here in your Indian soil, one philosopher named Prabhat Ranjan Sarkar, he said, we don't have to do either of these. There's a way how to, um, to satisfy the needs of individuals, but also to care for the, the needs of the society. We can balance these things. And so he proposed a system which is called Progressive Utilization Theory, or with its acronym PROUD. 
And um, I can also describe it in another way. I can describe it, this is also a term that he has given, I call it, and he calls it, economic democracy. So economic democracy, this is a very important concept. Because everybody wants democracy, right? You want, you, everybody wants to be able to vote for the president, or the prime minister, the, 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 um, the parliament, or some. You want to have your say. Every, nobody wants to be suppressed. But the fact is that you don't have a full democracy because you don't have any say over the, what's going to happen to your job. Um, like, I remember when I was in Europe, I was, used to follow the BBC. So I remember one incident. You know that in England they have a declining motor industry. It was once a um, formidable force, but then it went into decline because it couldn't compete. So what happened was that some of the remaining British auto industries um, were like purchased by, um, by Germans. So one day I was reading um, or listening and so what happened was that there was a meeting of the board of the directors of one of these German companies. They met in Frankfurt. And then they had to decide, are they going to close the auto plant in England? So these workers in England had no vote in this. This matter concerning their, their very um, livelihood was determined by a board of directors in England, in, in Frankfurt, excuse me, so they had no vote. You have no vote. If, if the, uh, it's the bottom line. You know, if the board of directors looks at the bottom line and says, well, your factory is not producing, we'll, let, we can close it. You don't have anything to say. You're given a slip in the morning. Um, sorry, um, thank you for your services. You're gone. So this, is this democracy? Maybe you have political. You can choose your president, but you can't choose about your job. So one of the, um, the features of what Prabhat Ranjan Sarkar said is that, that we have to introduce a system where the people have a say in their economic life. And um, to do this, he, he, um, he gave a structure of the economy, which is very interesting. And I, I haven't seen anybody else describe it, so that's why I'm going to take a little bit of time on it. Nobody, there are a lot of people talking about economic democracy. It's, it's a term that was, it, you, know, you can look it up on uh, Wikipedia or the encyclopedia. It's been around. But nobody ever gave this formula. What he said was that let's have an economy which, which of several kinds of organization. Uh, so right now, um, we have mostly it's free enterprise. Um, and there are a few exceptions to that. But but he said, let's have a three-tiered economy. So today I was um, driving around, someone drove me around the streets here in Bhubaneswar, and I saw a man with a cart with popcorn. <laughs> Just that's all he had was there, popcorn. He's selling popcorn. Okay, this man is selling popcorn. That's free enterprise. Let him do it. You don't need to, the state doesn't have to own that or a cooperative. Or, it's very simple enterprise. And he's, he, one person is employed, it's, not, it's a non-essential good. Let him do it. What's the harm in that? So what, what um, Prabhat Ranjan Sarkar said was that let there be a private sector. And that private sector should deal with small-scale enterprise. Um, enterprises with few employees, and they deal with 
with um, goods which are not essential goods. So there's no harm in it. But what he said next, and this is the important thing, other enterprises which are more complicated and um, more sophisticated, they employ more people, let's run these as cooperatives. So cooperative means that the worker is also a part owner. You see, the problem of capitalism as it's structured today is that we have absentee ownership. Like in this case I mentioned for England and Germany, the owners lived in um, Germany and the workers lived in England. So I don't know if you've ever rented a house and you know there are two kinds of owners. If, if you rent a house and the owner lives down below, he will take care of that house because he's also living in that environment. But if the owner is an absentee owner, he, he's just running it as a business and he lives somewhere else, you might be in trouble because that, that, that um, landlord is going to neglect your property and you're going to, you may be in big trouble. So when the owners of your, um, your very livelihood are absentee, you could be in trouble, like these English workers in that, in that plant. So the, the, remedy, the remedy for this is instead of having boards of directors and um, shareholders um, who, who don't have anything to... They don't even live in that district. They don't work there. No, the major enterprises of this society should be run by cooperatives. And um, we'll, I can discuss this too. Some people say, well, is this sufficient or not? Well, there are examples of it. And then, and also this is a very important point. These cooperatives, in, during the Marxist period of Eastern Europe, they called their enterprises cooperatives, but they were not cooperatives. They were state-owned firms. The state was the owner. And, and, and so, the, so the, the workers and the people there didn't have any feeling for it. They didn't have any, because they didn't own anything. They had no stake in it. I once went to Poland, and um, I saw some people, they were working on the road. And then I saw that for a long time, they're sitting idle. They're not even working. So I, I said to my friend, I said, what's happening here? He said, oh, you know, they have no thing to say about their work. They have no stake in it. They're going to get paid whatever they do. As I say, there's no incentive. So that's why they're not working. So that didn't work when you had so-called cooperatives owned by the state. But real cooperatives means that the, the people who are part of that enterprise, they are the owners. And they, they decide. They have a vote. So it's, that's economic democracy on that level. Um, and then he said another thing which is interesting, especially in light of, of the, the wave of privatization that we have today in, in most of the um, economies. He said that the key industries, the key industries, these are the industries which are, are too big to be managed by cooperatives, which are um, too important also. They, they, they affect the whole economy, like transportation, um, fundamental mining, and um, even defense industry. I'll talk about defense industry also when I get to government. These things, is, this is too important for cooperatives. So these things should be publicly managed. But here he said something very interesting, which is um, it, because in, um, in, in Europe they had an idea of central 
uh, control of these things, and that it was a disaster. So he said, no, there should not be politicians in some central um, capital controlling these key industries. Rather, he said, there should be, in federal systems, the immediate local government should be the, the, uh, the overseer of the, of the key industries. And in, um, in systems of unitary government, where there is no strong local government, then public boards should be uh, um, set up to um, oversee the working of the key industry. But the key industries, these telecommunications and transportation, they should not be privatized. I remember also, you know, when communism ended, they had a dilemma of what to do, because before, the state owned everything. The state owned it. So then what are they going to do now? So the first president of, of um, the Czechoslovakia, which later became the Czech Republic, was a poet, an intellectual, named Václav Havel. Some of you might remember. He, he, I think he died recently. So he was a very good man. So he was pondering this question, and he said, yeah, we, we can't sell the family silverware. It means these key industries, you know, we can't just sell them. But what happened was that his reign or his, his time was short-lived, and a more so-called pragmatic man came named Václav Klaus, who was a more orthodox um, capitalist, and, and then they sold all the, the key industries, you know, and that's why you have in many um, European countries. Um, like I was in Albania, which is a poor country, and, and I saw, they sold some of their telecommunications to a Greek company. But according to what Pierre Sarkar said, this should never, 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 never be done. It shouldn't be put into private hands, and it shouldn't be put into private foreign hands. This is a, a complete... Um, uh, it goes against this kind of thing. So this kind of three-tiered economy will give people um, a voice in their life. And another thing he said about the economy, which is very important, very relevant, especially for India, where you have, um, you have a rising middle class here in the urban areas, but you have tremendous poverty in the rural areas, he said we need a decentralized system. We need decentralized economy um, where, where local people will um, have a say in the planning and where the industries and the enterprises will be spread out, employment will be spread out. Uh, it's unhealthy to crowd you know, 10 million people in one city and then, then expect, also expect them to have a high moral standard, a high standard of um, living. It, it can't be done. So he said, let there be a decentralized economy. And this decentralized economy will also give people a vote, a say in what they can do. So what he said is that this kind of economy will create a prosperity, and a prosperity that is shared by, by many people. He said also a very important thing, you know, this, uh, this is a you know, contentious issue. Nobody's ever raised it before, actually. No one's really raising it. And I think... Um, you know, this problem of corruption in India, I, I'm not a big, I don't follow your politics so much, or, but I know that it exists. But I think that's only a symptom of, of something which he was talking about. He said that, like most um, people who write about the welfare of the world, he said, definitely, there should be a floor of, nobody should go below the poverty line. All people who 
are concerned with welfare economics have said that, that we shouldn't allow people to go below the poverty line. That's why we have such things as the minimum wage, we have what's called the social safety net, where we, we give unemployment, or we give health care. We don't actually have this in the U.S., but in, in, many, in, the, in the European countries they have it, you know, this universal health care. So nobody is going to, is going to die you know, for lack of the, the, um, the basic things. So he said, yes, society should do this. But he said something more, and nobody has said this yet. He said... And I'm sorry if it pinches anybody, but it, shouldn't, it won't have to pinch anybody because I'll explain it. He said, we have to put a ceiling on the economic house. Just like there's a floor, there has to be a ceiling. So what is that ceiling? The ceiling is that nobody should be allowed to accumulate any physical wealth without the permission of the society. So in America, they think that everybody should be allowed to um, accumulate as much as they can. Uh, Bill Gates, you know, or, or others. They, and th that the, lo the logic of that is, yeah, if these people work hard, then it will trickle down. It will trickle down to everybody. But it doesn't trickle down, as we've seen. It, it doesn't, 1% has it, 99% doesn't have it. It doesn't trickle down. So... So Sarkar said something which is revolutionary in that said we have to now think about we think about minimum wage, right? No one ever talked about a maximum wage. The gap between a school teacher and a, and a CEO, how many thousands of times it was like in America, I remember also during the um, there was a scandal of in uh, some years back where there was one uh, stock market guy he was making five hundred and $50 million a year. So compare that to a school teacher making $35,000 a year. What is the difference? And that didn't even account for his wealth. That was his salary, let alone his assets. You know, so this kind of a gap is unhealthy for the society. And that's what leads to the corruption. Because when people can accumulate so much, of course they're going to stash it somewhere else. You know, um, and it's a very harmful thing. So society has to start to think about one day establishing limits on the accumulation of wealth. But this should not, nobody should be um, worried about that. Suppose, even, even in America, if I had to start the system today, I would say, okay, let, let, let people collect 20, let them have, let's have a ceiling of $20 million. Because, you know, like if you have a house in America and with property values, it could be worth a million dollars right there. Okay, let them have $20 million. But even if I said this, there'd be a howl from, from the people who have billions. But, but all of us here, would, would you mind if, if, there, if someone set a limit of $20 million? Would, would that be such a, um, pri you know, a privation for you? I don't think so. So the idea here is, you know, this is a very important concept that I'm talking about, is that you know, this is definitely a system of socialization, in a sense, that the society has a say. So usually when people talk about, and in America there's a big howl that comes up, even if someone says we're going to give um, uh, universal medical care, they say this is socialized medicine, you know, and, and, and people think about oh, of Cuba, or they think about um, communist China before it became capitalist, where, where, you know, where the grim life, or Soviet Union, 
you know, they think everyone will be, you know, wearing gray suits and, you know, and taking um, um, a little bit of gruel each day, some kind of, you know, and working in the, um, in, the, uh, in the labor camps. No, it doesn't mean that. If you go to Sweden, they have a more a socialized economy in a sense, although it's really more capitalist. But, but, but go to some of these countries, I think that we can have in the future, we will have a system which will be, um, there will be limits of the wealth, but the bottom will, will not go, it, it will not go down either. It will be a nice standard for all the people. And I think this is what, what we should do. But the problem is that because of the, um, the propaganda that has been uh, uh, from the Cold War, especially in my country, people are just frightened of anything, anything to do with them. Um, if you mention anything to help people or to, to curb the... This is a very interesting phenomenon in, 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 uh, in the USA, is that you get an instance where the, even the low-class people, they vote for the rich, the rich candidates. They vote for the rich. One, I have a friend from Spain. He said, I don't understand the system here. In my country, the working-class people vote for the labor parties. And, uh, but in America, working-class people, they will, offer, they will vote for Romney. Romney was the candidate of the 1%. But many of the working-class Americans voted for Romney. Why? The reason is they've been um, scared. They've been told that, you know, that you know, if, if you do anything which helps society, then your rights will be taken away. They've also been told that, yeah, you have the, the chance. If you work hard, you will also be like Romney. You'll have, you'll have two, his wife drives two Cadillacs. He says, yeah, he says, I have an SUV, my wife has two Cadillacs. Yeah, so they think that if they work very hard, they're going to also be in the top 1%. But it's not true. So in any case, what um, economic democracy uh, and the progressive utilization theory um, and other, anybody who's working for the welfare of the society um, is proposing is not to bring people down to a, a low common denominator, but raise all to a, a very good standard, a nice standard. And, and, but just the only person who, the people who want to have, you know, excessive things, I'm sorry, that cannot be accommodated. That's what Mahatma Gandhi said, you know, there's enough in this world for each one's need, but not enough for everyone's greed. We can't accommodate. You know, and this is getting to the environmental aspect. They say that if everybody of this world lived um, an American-style life, then we would need five planets to accommodate that. Five planets. But the reason for that is because the American standard is so um, irrational. There's no public transportation. They build houses in some place. There are no shops. You can't walk to a shop. So, of course, everybody's going to need a car. So if you set up your, your society like that, then you're going to need five planets. But we don't have to... Um, have five planets. We can set up this is, if we use a decentralized system and people are living in nice communities and they have their shops, they have their work nearby, there will be a good standard. And, and we will only, one Earth can accommodate it. And if we need more, we'll, we will we'll explore space. But, but we can accommodate a nice standard on one Earth. But, here's the but. And we can solve even the, um, 
you know, we have global warming and environmental crisis. We can solve those problems, but we can only solve those problems if rational people are making those decisions, and those people are making those decisions on behalf of all, and not for their selfish interest. This is the, the dilemma. And the problem today is that we don't have rational people making those decisions, and we don't have people making those decisions based on the welfare of all. We have vested interests making the decisions, and this is what is the corrosive effect of the accumulation of wealth in the hands of a few, because they control the political system. So they, they billions of dollars are given to each candidate. So each candidate is really a representative of one corporate interest or another. Nobody is, is speaking something else. So if the decisions are made by self-interested people who only want to accumulate more and more, then we cannot come out of the crisis. There's no way out of the crisis. So the way out of the crisis is that we have to change the economic system and that will free the political system and, and, and then good people can, can rise to positions. But if we don't address the economic issue, we will not um, be successful. So that's why in the 20th century, um, the, the main issue was political democracy. That's why even the US went to war, World War I, they said, we want to make the world safe for democracy. That was a slogan, whether they really, well, that's the reason they went to war, not you know, let the historians decide that. But, but that was the agitation all over the world. Like in, in Africa, people agitated. South Africa, you know, the black people said, we want our political rights, we want to vote also. But in the 21st century, we have to carry that further. We have to say, we want our economic rights. We want economic democracy. So this is um, my suggestion, because I, I heard that some activists are here. I, I say we should raise this um, cry now. We want our economic rights. We want economic democracy, not just political democracy. So I say that, and I believe you know, that if we can achieve this, then um, we can bring a very good standard of living for all the people of, of this planet, and, and nobody will be deprived. Even I spoke in my last, um, uh, in the last a few days ago, that these people who, who accumulate excessive wealth, that doesn't bring them happiness. No, it doesn't bring them happiness. One thing which I didn't say, which I'll say today, there is one principle of, um, of yoga, which it says, aparigraha, not to take. You shouldn't take more than you really need, okay? And what is, um, if you, if there are two harmful things of, of anyone who goes against that. One harmful thing is that it harms the society. Because if you take too much, then there'll be somebody with too little. But there's another harmful effect, and, it ha and, it, and it's an effect that it boomerangs back on that person. What is that effect? Those people who are, um, violate this aparigraha and accumulate too much, they can never achieve contentment of mind. Never. They will never achieve contentment of mind. This is another yoga principle, santosha. The yoga principle says you should work, get what you have deserved, 
relax, enjoy. But these people who violate a parigraha, they never get composure, they never get satisfaction. They, they're worried about their wealth, what's going to happen to it, and what's going to happen to it tomorrow. So, so it's, not a, it's not a happy um, thing for them. So if one day, if the society will uh, um, put a limit, that society will be doing these people a big, big favor. Um, it will do a favor for them, and of course it will do a favor for all the others. I wanted to say one more thing about um, one of the crises, is a crisis of government. Um, we have, so anyway, as economic democracy is going to fix that on the, on the national level, on the local level. It, it, will, it, will, it will help politics very much. But we have another political problem, which is on the world scale. We have a, a world of anarchy. Um, and um, because of that, we have armaments, um, expenditures, which are insane. You know, like politicians will say, I want to balance the budget. So if they want to balance the budget, they cut spending. Where do they cut the spending? They cut it on social programs, you know, which would help, you know, some social program which will help um, children get kindergarten or pre-kindergarten education. Uh, like that. They will cut those programs, even though those, those programs have been shown to be very effective. They will cut them. But they will never, never, never cut the, the arms spending. The country where I come from, I'm, I'm ashamed to say how, how much is spent. And, and they try to become the policemen of the world. Who appointed any country to be the policemen of the world? Why should any country have bases outside its own soil, let alone on 30 different uh, countries and all, on every continent? Why should any country have that right? So this is, um, has to be addressed. We cannot um, afford to spend uh, our hard-earned wealth on, on useless armaments, you know, which are just going to um, put us all in peril. If there's some mistake, they, we could all um, be blown up. Just a little mistake. You know, it's happened before one time in, um, in the 1990s, even after the Cold War ended, what they set up in Norway, some weather rockets were sent up. And then Yeltsin, who was supposedly a friend of the U.S., he was ready to um, start a nuclear war against the U.S. He thought he was being attacked. So this is a perilous um, situation, and it uh, has to be stopped. And um, if you will um, think about it, you know, we, we need actually a real-world government. It, and in the future, there will be one. There will be a world government. And then when that day comes then the, the necessity for any nation to, to, um, to have inordinate amounts of armaments will, will not be there. I know I say this in, in a country where you, have a, you, have a, you live in a rough neighborhood now, so you know, it's, it's difficult to um, preach this now, but, but the future will be that, that, um, that all the neighborhoods of the world will become more um, civilized and, and you won't have to... Um, worry about that. You won't have to divert our resource, your resources into um, such um, uh, unnecessary expenditures. So this, I think it's going to come in the future. Uh, it will come. It has to come. Because, because if civilization is to survive, we have to. We have to solve problems such as this one. So anyway, um, as I, I was brief the other night, I'm, I'd like to be brief but, but I've addressed some things, you know, 
we have an economic crisis. We, we have to um, build a world where all the people get uh, the bounty of, of, of nature. All the people should share in this bounty. And um, if we do this, um, and if, if we set it up correctly, it, it will correct many of the, the political problems that we have. And, and when that is corrected, then we can address any problem. When we have good people at the helm, then we can address any problem. And this brings me to one more thing Yeah, I have to say, it's very important. Now, I say we need good people at the helm of affairs. Now, what is a good person? So a good person is someone, we say, is a, is a moralist. Actually, in America, this is not a good term, because a moralist means someone it, it, has, a, it has a negative connotation. But the, the, the positive connotation here is that, that if people follow fundamental um, cardinal human values in their life, those people uh, are capable of, of serving the society. So people who, who don't harm others, who speak uh, with idea of welfare, and who don't steal, who, who see the goodness in all beings, who don't take more than they need, who purify their, their, their mind, who, who remain content, who study to become wiser, who serve the society, and who fix their goal, which I talked about last time, they fix their goal on some cosmic ideal. So people with these kind of values, this is what is needed. You know, because we talk a lot about um, political change, you know, and throw the rascals out, you know, throw the, like we, yeah, we just replace the parliament, we say, yeah, but who are we going to replace them with? Do you have, in America, I would need 535 moral people. I can't find that. So the, one of the big needs of anybody who wants to become an activist and change this is that we have to work on ourselves to become a moral person. And that's what I spoke about, um, how to do that. I spoke the other day about that. But we have to work on ourselves in some, some kind of um, uh, perfection-striving effort we call sadhana. We have to do some kind of sadhana. Because it's not just um, you will read about good values. You know, there's so many Bibles and so many um, scriptures in the world, but the people are not honest. So we, how to become honest? You have to work on yourself. If you want to become an honest person, it's not enough just you read about it and you heard it in a temple, you heard it in a church, you heard it in some place of worship. You have to make day-to-day -day efforts to change yourself. And this is the, uh, the important thing. You know, I, this concept of economic democracy and of progressive utilization, it's a good idea. But also, even in Marxism, they had some good ideas, but they couldn't um, bring those ideas into fruition because the people who did that were selfish. If you have selfish people, they will corrupt even a good idea. So we need unselfish people. We need caring people, serving people. So to do that, we have to, each one of us, we have to work on ourselves. We have to, um, we have to do something so that we become a good person. And then we will be um, the ones who can, um, as we say, um, be part of the solution and not part of the problem. So if you want to be part of the solution, then you should make um, rigorous efforts to, to improve your moral standard, improve your human standard. 
and, and the future of humanity depends on this effort. Actually, it's easy. I can tell you about what to do with the economy, what to do with the government. I can tell you those things in, in 30 minutes, but that won't do it if we don't have people. This is the, this is, I see it as um, the biggest challenge in, in um, bringing this kind of a, a better system into being. The biggest challenge is the human challenge. So it requires a, a staunch effort. And that's why you see a yogi is, is talking about these kind of things, because you have to become like a yogi. But you don't have, like someone mentioned the other day, you don't have to dress in orange, but, but in your, the orange only, what does it mean? It's sacrifice, service. So you don't have to wear orange, but that, that orange spirit has to be in your mind. So you have to do something, do something to get that, that spirit in your mind. And with, if, if we can do that, if we can get even like you, 50 or 100 people here, if you can all become such kind of moral people, um, then we can do wonders in this world. I've seen it, you know, that even one, one great person can, can, can help hundreds of people. So, that's, that's really um, what I have to say. I don't know, I don't think I forgot anything. So, anyway, so I thank you for your, um, your attention. I appreciate that. You know, like a speaker needs an audience. If there's no audience, I can't speak. So, so you know, I appreciate that you've come and taken your time. And this is like a festival evening too, right? Most people are out you know, making fireworks or, or whatever, but you came for something serious. So I appreciate that commitment and I thank you all very much.